Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Yahoo! Listeners, welcome to episode 94 of the Feelin' Film Podcast, where peace is our profession. I'm Major Aaron, and with me is my awesome co-host, General Patch. Yes, sir. In our first two episodes of Kubrick Month, we've covered the director's unique vision of horror and the science fiction genres. But now we're going to turn our attention to his take on satire and comedy. This conversation about Dr. Strangelove, or one of the 10 longest titles in movie history, should be a lot of fun. We promise to take the nuclear war seriously, don't worry, when the time is right. Stick with us, we have a plan. But before we jump into that, let's catch up on last week. Patrick, what have you been up to, man? You got anything worth recommending? I do. I have a I have a quick movie. Uh, I, my my son and I, a quick movie and a game actually. Ooh. My son and I got a chance to. Um, he he saw in my uh, digital playlist the Prince of Egypt. Saw a cartoon and I uh, had a chance to rewatch that with him, and just fell in love with it all over again. DreamWorks was at the time it came out. I remember it completely, just blowing my mind at how amazing it was and how art just from a storytelling standpoint, how incredibly faithful it was to the biblical story of Moses. And it's one of my favorite animated features. And I'd forgotten about how much I loved it until I sat down and watched it with him and got to point out just the moments that I thought were just really compelling. And so it was really cool to go through that with him. So if you get a chance to rewatch it, it's worth, it it holds up really well. I think it came out in the late nineties, but it's a, it's really good. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've seen it. I maybe once, twice back way back when it actually came out, but I don't, I don't think I've seen it. As an adult, it's a, it's a cool theatrical experience. I remember my theatrical experience with it, and so it's gotten it lo- it loses a little bit on the smaller screen, but at the same time, it's still a, a well made movie. So, highly recommend a watch or a rewatch if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quick was um, a a game, a board game that um, I think it came out in 2016 as part of a Kickstarter. Uh, Saturday night, my wife and I, we joined uh, three or four other couples for what we call Supper Club. It's where we get together once a month and one of the couples hosts by cooking dinner and we bring over uh, spirited beverages and spirited conversation. And this weekend, uh, one of the couples brought over a game called Secret Hitler. Now, I've talked to several people about this and it's about 50-50 on people that know what it is and people that don't. So, for those of you that know what this is, I'm sorry I'm late to the party. You know, this is not anything new. But for those of you who haven't heard of this game, let me indulge you this. It's a it's a game that really just encourages lying and deception. Uh, with a name like Secret Hitler, you really can't not lie. But it's, it's a ton of fun because it centers around uh, two teams, usually between five and eight players. And... One set of players are what are called liberals and one set of players are fascists. And the way in which you get to be one or the other is you have these, these envelopes that have membership cards in them. And they are, I think for our purposes, I think there were eight of them because there were eight of us playing and there were three fascist envelopes and five liberal envelopes. So we each got one handed out to us and we each looked at them and 
the way the game works is none of the liberals know who the fascists are and the fascists, the three fascists in our case, two of them knew who each other were and who the liberals were. And the other fascist who is also Hitler (laughs) is known by the fascists, but not by the liberals. Now, if this is confusing, believe me, it is at first, but once you start playing, you start getting it. And essentially what it is, the, the, the object of the game is to figure out not only who the liberals and the fascists are, but to also figure out who Hitler is through a series of turns in which you are quote voting for, uh, political policies, either a liberal or a fascist policy. So each turn, someone plays the president, they nominate a chancellor, uh, everybody votes yay or nay. And if those guys get voted yes, then the president draws three cards and those cards either say fascist or or liberal. He discards one, gives the other two to the chancellor. The chancellor then has to pick one of those two and that card gets played as either a liberal or a fascist policy. And so each turn you have to, it's, it's like a, a way to uh, understand and try to figure out, okay, who's on whose sides, because you could be a liberal, but you've been given all three fascist cards. So you have to play one. And so it looks like you might be a fascist. And so there's all sorts of deception and lying and whatnot. But what I enjoyed most about the game was all of the laughter that came from it. I mean, you had people throwing just hilarious, uh, names at each other like fascist pig and uh and liberal commie and all these names that really just didn't matter and when you get into the place where you're just accusing one another it's just a laugh fest and to be able to get through a game and and have just people um you just get to see the personalities of the people and so part of what we do at supper club is just a way to get to know one another and having a game like this in front of us gives us that opportunity because you'd get these personality traits that normally wouldn't come out over just a normal dinner conversation. And so Secret Hitler, uh, I highly recommend it. It's one that I'm going to purchase at some point, but it's one that I think is a lot of fun. If, if for no other reason, then it brings people together that may not have a lot in common. So uh, I highly recommend that one. That's awesome. I, you know, I, I've heard of it and I've, I've watched it played. I've never actually taken part myself. Uh, it's, it falls into that category of social deduction games. That's the, yes, the it, genre that's of games. Describe it. Yeah. And they're, they've really taken off in recent years, games like the resistance and coup and just, there's so much fun because like you said, they, they bring out that laughter and it comes because everybody's trying to decide who is who and, and there's, it's, it's, I mean, there's very little actual skill to it. There's, there's probably some, but I think, I feel like the people who do good at these games are those people that have gut instincts. You know, they're the people that you would say, they just know things. Yeah. <laughs> like they just have that intuition. And uh, otherwise it's, it's always got a whole slam of luck to it. Um, I, I've actually known people who definitely had a problem with the theme being secret Hitler, it is it is something that some people have been frustrated by. And if you go on boardgamegeek.com, which is where us board game geeks live, uh, and find all of our board game information, there are rethemes of this. And I've always wanted to do it this way. There's a there's a secret Voldemort retheme of the game where <laughs> everything is branded as the Order of the Phoenix versus the Death Eaters, and you have uh, the Minister of Magic and the Chief warlock of the wizengamut gamut 
Um, and so it's just, it, it's super cool. Like people make all kinds of neat little things. And I've seen other ones like that for secret Hitler specifically because people just aren't comfortable with you know, right. the theme, but yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you got to try it. it. It makes me really, now that I know you like that one day, we need to put this on our bucket list. Um, maybe if I get to see you again next year, we need to play this game called it was Battlestar Galactica, the board game. And the BSG board game is a social deduction game. It's a long game. Usually it takes about three to four hours. I've never gotten to play it. Just know all about it. But it is like this. So it's just like BSG where somebody's a Cylon, somebody's not, and you're trying to figure (laughs) it out. So you would love that. Heck if yeah. you enjoyed Secret Hitler. So say we all. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> so we'll put that on the list, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, well, how about you, man? What have you been up to this week? Um, well, I went and saw a film last week uh, before it came out, and I was a little bit lukewarm, was not sure I wanted to go see it, but this movie, 12 Strong, which is a war film, and ultimately I decided to go see it because I do typically enjoy war films even though this one did not excite me at all all of the branding has been around this idea of horse soldiers and it's a chris hemsworth led movie and i just wasn't sure that he was going to be able to to handle it frankly because other than thor and a really humorous role in the cabin in the woods i haven't seen him do anything that screams leading man has Michael Shannon as well as one of the soldiers in this special forces group. And that just felt kind of odd to me. Michael Pena is in it. And I kind of thought, okay, he's going to be comedic relief, right? Well, this story is based on a book and it's uh, the true now declassified story of the horse soldiers. And this is a group of U S special forces members who deployed to Afghanistan pretty much right after September 11th, 2001, uh, when the World Trade Center was attacked. And they immediately were inserted into country and had to link up with this local general uh, warlord named General Dotsam. And the goal was they needed to liberate this specific city from a group of Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters. Well, the interesting thing about this film is how it plays out it's it's not just guys on horse combat okay like that's actually a very minuscule part of the movie although it's 90 percent of the trailer and i was glad i was glad that's how it ended up being it it's it's actually more about the diplomacy that was involved and the relationships that take place between the american uh, soldiers led by captain mitch nelson that's who chris hemsworth plays he's this wide-eyed naive captain who was had just retired and or not retired, but had just kind of gone to a desk job and, and gotten out of the field and comes in just storming in after nine 11, wanting to get into the war. And I really resonated with that being a veteran who was in the middle East on nine 11 deployed. I know what it feels like and what it, what it, what it meant for, for us to want to immediately go fight. I mean that, that we all wanted to do that. And the movie to me really captures that, that sense. And so these guys go over there. Um, Michael Shannon plays a, a chief warrant officer. Who's uh, an older, more experienced veteran. That's underneath captain Mitch Nelson, but giving him advice and, and ushering him along. I thought he did a fantastic job. Michael Pena ends up 
not really being as comedic relief as I thought. He he plays um a pretty pretty solid solid role. I mean, he's funny at times, but not in the humorous way that I was expecting. And ultimately, I just thought the movie was pretty darn good. It's got issues. It doesn't go over the entire history of where this war in Afghanistan has led us. So you might watch this film and think General Dotson is a hero, although I don't think it necessarily portrays him like that. He did have his problems, and he has done some questionable things, even though he's now the vice president of Afghanistan. But what it really focuses in on is that relationship between us and them, us being gung-ho and thinking that we could just bomb everything from the sky and there would be no consequences, and that we would walk in and win this war, and it'd be over in 21 days. And the irony, watching soldiers act that way and think that way, knowing with the knowledge we have that here we are 16, 17 years later, and you know it's not over. So it, it really evokes some powerful emotions in me. It's a powerful pounding movie kind of like black hawk down uh was when it when it gets going it's just that score is pumping throughout the movie and it's just kind of pushing you along it's fast paced i never felt like it dragged it just you know took me right through it on an on a roller coaster ride and uh yeah the the camaraderie i think that they get right none of the characters are made to be really over over anybody else they're all just a group of guys who are together as a team working as a team and nobody gets more screen times as much as you know than the other guy it's no one's focused on it's not about each character individually developing it's about the team going through this experience and i thought it really did a good job of showing military brotherhood and getting the the goofiness of the way that we talk to each other when we're deployed just right even though some of my some of the people that saw the movie with me made some comments about some of the language and I was laughing because I was like, you guys are making fun of that and saying it's not good movie dialogue, but it's, it's real. Like that's how we talk. Yes. That sounds stupid, but that is exactly, that is like, I've said those things. I've heard those things. So I appreciated that a lot. And uh, yeah, I like it, man. I thought, I thought it was better than I, than I was expecting. So pretty good. Very cool. Yeah. Well, um, the other quick things, just a, a couple notes before we jump into Dr. Strangelove. I was recently on two other podcasts. It's been a busy month for me. Um, I was honored to be on Cinescope Podcasts with our friend Chad Hopkins. He hosts that one and had me on to talk about Les Miserables, the 2011 movie with Hugh Jackman, the movie adaptation of my favorite stage musical of all time. It was an awesome conversation and we didn't even cry the whole time. So please go to Cinescope, check that one out. It, it's great. It's great. Patrick, you'll like it a lot as well. We, we just had, we had an awesome talk about the movie. I've got and the other one. To listen to. Yeah. The other one was uh, real world theology. Uh, they had me on Mikey did for a conversation with himself and Steve Norton of Screenfish to talk about the Florida project, which was, Maybe the most emotionally impacting movie of 2017 for me um, really centered around empathy and bringing that out in us for groups that are marginalized. And that was how the conversation went. It was, it was pretty moving as well. So love to have people check out uh, that conversation as well. The, the real world theology podcast, you can find both real world theology and Cinescope everywhere. You can find feel and film. You can find them 
on the web. You can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. So we'd love for people to check those out. The last note is Patrick. We are pushing toward Oscar season as of this recording tomorrow. The nominations are coming out, but what's important is that the Feelers Choice Awards nominations are in play too. That is right. That is we, right. We have now posted the link for you to nominate your favorites. Now, the thing about the Feelers Choice nominations are that this is restricted to the Facebook group where we have the, the discussion happening. Sorry, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, we have to keep control of that link somehow. And if I put it on Twitter, it goes everywhere. And we don't have actual listeners giving our input. And we want to make sure that these awards are representative of our community of listeners. So come join the Facebook group. It's free. There's nothing, no strings attached. The post is pinned at the top and go through and put in your nominations. You don't have to nominate five or 10 in every category. If you have three that you feel strongly about, put your three in. Skip a category if you need to. That's fine. Once all that's done in a few weeks, I will compile all the data on a points-based system, and then we will have our Feeler's Choice Award ballot, and that will go out as well in the Facebook group for everybody to vote on, and we'll announce what the Feeler's Choice Awards are, I think, the day after the Oscars. So you'll get to have our awards and their awards, and then we'll have one big podcast where we talk about both together. So we're really excited that this process is getting started. Again, it's in that discussion group. It's one of the many awesome things that takes place there, so we'd love to have you come join us one last thing spoiler alert spoiler alert spoiler alert spoiler alert if you have not seen dr strange love i'm not going to admonish you because i had not seen this film until last year patrick (laughs) that was my first time so i was a little bit behind even though this came out in 1964 but we are going to go into depth and we're going to talk about everything and speak about the ending and speak about all the craziness that ensues So listeners, if you haven't seen the film, it's probably in your best interest to turn away, go check it out. It's pretty short. It's a quick and easy watch and then come back and you can listen to this conversation. That being said, Patrick, I think you might've seen it more than me. Even if you haven't, we're going to just go with you first. And why don't you tell us what you thought about it? Yeah. The first time I watched it was, I remember being a teenager and I did not get the humor at all. This was a black and white movie. Again, I think I'm going to probably just credit my dad for being the influence on Kubrick and older, older movies like this, but Kubrick in in particular, because he turned me on to 2001 and then, then to this one. And when I watched it as a teenager, I really just did not understand what was so funny about it. In fact, it seemed pretty stupid. Actually, I was like, okay, am I supposed to be laughing here? There's explosions and there's bombs and there's a president who, is acting pretty dumb and there's this guy with a gun shooting and talking about fluoride and what, what is happening here. And as I got older, as I've talked about before, watching this again, put me in a position of having experienced other screwball comedies, like the naked gun airplane, young Frankenstein movies that I began to understand why the humor was appreciated that satire that dark comedy that black comedy and so strange love actually became a lot funnier but i hadn't seen it in probably 10 years so it was probably in my 20s whenever i i watched it for the second time so watching it this time around having the 
whatever figure is, the appreciation the way I do. Uh, the one word takeaway that comes from this is absurd. And I mean, absurd choice. <laughs> in the most, in the most positive sense, the most affirming sense, because this is a movie that uses the absurdity of the world in which it is commentating on to tell a really hilarious, intriguing and educational story. I, if I could appreciate satire in, in one movie, it would be strange love because I think satire as a whole is most beneficial when it's poking fun at and educating at the same time. And, and strange love does that in a way where I feel like I can digest everything that's going on. I can understand these things without feeling like I'm emotionally overwhelmed or feel guilty about being a certain way, being an American or, or whatever. But I, as a movie, all that social commentary aside, I caught myself laughing out loud several times. There are, are two or three specific moments where I just was just cracking up and was talking to my coworker, who's also a big movie guy and saying, watch strange love this week. And I love the part where, and we're both just kind of throwing quotes back and forth. And those moments just remind me of what makes a funny movie funny to me is when I can engage in, in quote-a-thons, uh, you know, with things like Dumb and Dumber or Monty Python or things like that. So being able to do that with something like Dr. Strangelove, a movie 40, 40 years in the making, um, I was incredibly surprised. But But definitely the absurdity of it was probably the most attractive thing about the movie to me. Well, I think that absurd is a very good word for it. It's definitely that. Uh, I, when I watched this for the first time a couple of years ago, I think that if I had a one word takeaway at that time, that absurd might have been my word as well. That was what you just described is very similar to the reaction that I had to the movie at that time. I thought it was pretty darn hilarious. And it just totally, it was so different and interesting. It, it, there's just nothing like this. Okay. I, in fact, I think I watched it. The only thing that is sort of like it is Young Frankenstein to me. Maybe that's just because they're both black and white, but they're both that same style of kind of drier comedy. I don't think Young Frankenstein is satire, but um, I watched them at a similar time and I kind of had some comparisons. That being said, I went into this time thinking, wow, this is awesome and so funny. But my one word takeaway for this most recent viewing before taking notes for the podcast was terrifying. And the main reason for that has to do with our current state of world affairs. And I couldn't help but watch this with this set of eyes that kept having President Trump tweets flashing across my screen, talking about joking about pushing a nuclear button that's bigger than North Korea and things of that nature. And it, and it scared the crap out of me. And, and for some reason, this viewing just took a much more serious tone. I didn't really engage as much with the comedy at all. I didn't even, I didn't really feel the comedy. And I actually think that the comedy is good to great, depending on your taste in certain period put points of this film, but it's not as frequent as we might, remember or we might think it is there there's a lot of slow burn seriousness to this movie i mean it is i think i was kind of timing and it, it took a good 30 minutes or so before we got into any war room 
joking. And part of that is also, like I said, it's that dry comedy that's not in your face where the characters are laughing. It's, it's that, it's that, Oh, we're chuckling kind of underneath our breath at them, but they're not necessarily part of it kind of humor. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, it's hard for me with comedies as it is. I, I will say ultimately this time around, I admired it more than I enjoyed it. I still think it is a great film. I don't, think that it's one that I will need to revisit or feel the desire to revisit very often though. So it kind of came down just a little bit for me. Um, and we can talk about, you know, talk through some of that, but yeah. So that's, uh, that's where I'm at with Dr. Strangelove. Good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we both like it. So that's, that's a good starting <laughs> yes, point. Um, that's for sure. That's for sure. All right. Well, the first thing I wanted to kind of touch on is just this this plot right and so you you kind of jokingly brief briefly mentioned we have this uh, this character this uh colonel or is he a general general jack d ripper first of all his name is jack d ripper okay so the moment so i watched this with my two young teenage kids this time one fell asleep within 10 minutes another symbol of why i thought it was much more serious this time around uh, but I, I did get a chance to point this out. I was like, hey, did you hear this guy's name? And they were like, yeah, his name's, you know, General Ripper. I can't remember if he's a general or a colonel for some reason. And I said, yeah, look at look at the name tag on his desk. And so they looked and they were like, Jack. I was like, yeah, but what's the, what's the middle initial? And went, Jack D. Ripper. And then there was this about five-second pause. And then the light bulb went off. And my daughter, <laughs> daughter was oh, like, ha <laughs> that's the humor in this movie, right? Like that's, that's where it is. Now I love that. That may be one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie because of just little subtle things. Here. Subtlety is so awesome, but we have that character and everything revolves around him deciding that he wants to proactively start a nuclear war with Russia where once he commits us, our president and our government will have no other option but to fully commit to the attack and it will take them out at least more of them than they take out of us. And that that will save us because they have been poisoning our water supply with fluoride or something. I, yeah. So this is the part that I don't really care for because this is that, that this is like the 1964 version of juvenile humor to me. And, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, it's probably deeper than that. They're probably, they're probably knowing Kubrick was an actual scare that Russia was putting something in our water. And that's most likely where this came from. I wouldn't doubt it. Well, I mean, you have to realize, and I had to realize this, that the cold war put a sense of real paranoia in the hearts and minds of folks in the U S. I mean, this was a, this was a, this was a three decade event. I mean, it didn't end until 91 when the wall came down. And I, I remember hearing about all this as a kid and the whole, you know, the Star Wars and all the things that Reagan was was dealing with in the 80s. But, you know, I, I saw Russia from the eyes of this kind of satire from other movies like Red Dawn and things that really kind of personified, in a sense, maybe propagandized what Russia and what the Soviet Union was all about. And it's it's really interesting because I think what Kubrick's doing here is he's really he's really personifying what our fears were and how irrational 
they actually were. Now, nuclear weapons, that's a very real thing, and it's a very rational fear to have. But the other stuff that goes along with it, the reasons why these two countries had nuclear weapons and really kind of asking yourself, why are we mad at the Russians? Is it because they have nuclear weapons? And maybe in all that, maybe the whole point of what he's doing here is saying, we're just making up stuff. You know, we want to, if we're going to say that, that Russia is, is, has got nuclear weapons, it can't just be that it has to be, they're also doing this and there are spies that are on us soil. And so we have to find more reasons to hate them because nuclear weapons are not the only, they're, they're not enough. So in a lot of ways, I feel like he's articulating what we try to build up in our minds as a, uh, as a reason not to like this other country beyond just the fact that they have weapons of mass destruction, just like we do. Right. Yeah. That's totally fair. I mean, I, I don't doubt that for one, one second, because it is, like you said, it's about that. I think it was called mutually assured destruction is what the plan was called or the, the process or whatever. And basically that refers to the fact that each of the superpowers, us and Russia could destroy each other with nuclear weapons. So, no sneak attack and no defensive measures were going to work. And that's, that's what Ripper is, is banking on, right? The fact that there's nothing you can do to stop it. Once we start it, they're going to finish it. Or once they start it, we're going to, we're going to come back and do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so what it was is it resulted in the, the cold war where we both sides were put into it, it, the existence of the weapons of mass destruction served as defensiveness for both sides because we were afraid to use them. <laughs> and so it was just, it, it's crazy to me how that plays out. And ultimately what we find out is that we have this system. We have this, this, um, this plan R and Russia has this death day device and so there are these other things that kind of upset the balance, but they're mm -hmm. secret and nobody knows about them. So they don't even matter because if they're secret, then they can't prevent the other side from changing their, their way of, you know, going yeah. about business. It's, it's, it's hilarious um, in its irony. And that's why I find it terrifying too. It's because it feels so realistic even to today. I mean, I feel like sometimes when I look at the news that that the only thing that is keeping us from being attacked with nuclear weapons sometimes is the fact that another country or or whoever may know that you know they know that we can do the same thing back and it's even bigger. It's definitely a weird chess match that that we're playing with in this film because it's more of a defensive chess match than an offensive instead of two countries getting together and saying, look, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying this for sure. But instead of having two countries that say, look, why are we pointing nuclear weapons at each other? Let's just back down. You know, we'll agree not to have them and you'll agree not to have them. Instead, what we have is this defensive posture where it's like, we'll agree not to use them if you'll agree not to use them, but you're still accomplishing the same thing just with a really weird, negative, stupid motivation. It's like you're being motivated by fear that the other side's going to do something else instead of just saying, look, why can't we just agree to get along instead of agreeing to not blow each other up? And that's where I think the the absurdity comes in is that that's really highlighted in this you have these two countries that there's no 
it begins, it continues, and it ends with two countries that there's no resolution. It's all just about a defensive posture. And it's it's all set off by Ripper, who just says, I'm going to literally start World War III, even if it ends within 10 minutes. Yep. And it's incredibly stupid. But the thing about the thing about satire is it comes from a place of truth. And that's probably the scariest part about it is that there are probably people out there, military, civilian, I'm not going to put specifics on it that have that mentality of let's just go after them. Let's just go, you know, let's push the button. Right. And, let's do it. and, and that to me, I think is a very scary thought. Oh, it's, it's terrifying. That's why I use that word. It, it terrifies me. And it, it almost, it's interesting too, because it becomes where the nukes are the bad guys. So Russia is not the bad guy in this movie in any shape or form. Like it is the actual existence of the nuclear devices that are the, I I don't even want to say villain, but they're, they're they're the problem. The antagonist Mm -hmm. (laughs) to a large extent, because once, once Ripper puts this plan in motion, it's over. Like he can't undo it. And that's, that's another part of the interesting portion of this film is that it's poking holes in this system that exists where, we overly secure our process in a way that makes it where we can't undo it <laughs> if need be, if the mistake is made, because we're so we're so high and mighty, we're so full of ourselves that we don't think that mistakes are gonna happen. Like we're perfect. And that's that's what it's poking fun at. Um so Ripper sends sends off this guy, right? And it's major T TJ Kong. And I think the only way I can figure to talk about this is just kind of go through some of these characters because to me, this is like really a character piece mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. There, there's so many great ones and major TJ Kong, TJ King Kong, actually, <laughs> let's get it right. Of course. of course. Hilarious. Okay. So he's played by an actual uh, Western actor and who's a cowboy um, named Slim Pickens. That's his real name. Not his his real name is more movie like than his movie name. That doesn't happen very often. But he is a hoot in this, and he he gets this. And what I found interesting about him is how he doubts these orders. He starts off doubting these orders. He seems like the perfect soldier. He he hears he hears them from the back say. Yeah, you know, we got this code and it, it says plan R. And you can tell, like, he knows what plan R is. And he's like, ah, yeah, I'm coming back there to double check because that that can't be right. But once he confirms it, it's like he goes into all out committed mode and can't be swayed in any way. And and it makes me wonder, like, did how did you read him? Do you think that he is heroic in a sense or did you read him do you think he's meant to represent the gullibleness of americans in some ways well it's hard to tell because i would say the latter if he had without questioning the orders gone ahead and just implemented the plan that's kind of where i got a little jacked up because i wanted him to kind of be that stereotype be that you know what yeah, let's just go because that's what we're out here to do. The fact that he hesitates, the fact that he gets it confirmed, it almost gave me pause to say, oh, are we going to have a rounded character? 
And then he turns flat because then he goes all, all in on Mr. Patriotism. You know, I, I think that what he represents is an ideal. I think he represents this notion of what it means to be patriotic and both with its good and bad qualities. So in a lot of ways, I feel like he's sort of an allegory of that perfect patriotic military person. And it was incredibly entertaining, but I was, I was torn because I felt like he had, I felt like he had roundedness to his character at first and then just deviated into Kubrick's idea of what it meant to be, you know, patriotic in a sat- satirical sense. It didn't change the fact that I thought he was hilarious. And there were several moments that uh, one in particular is when he's reading off, I guess it's the, the ration box of the, or the survival kit. And he just starts saying, you know, 12 packs of chewman gum and five rolls of toilet paper and three prophylactics. (laughs) Somebody's going to have a good time. That's what he says. It's just really funny. Don't you say something like, I think they're going to Las Vegas or something. He makes some comment about something. I could have a good time in Las Vegas with all this stuff. He's like surprised at all this stuff in there. And um, that reminded me a lot of movies like Airplane, The Naked Gun, where you have just this complete ridiculousness that starts coming out. Um, but uh, but he was definitely one of my favorite characters. But I thought, if, at the very least, he represented a, an allegorical satire of the the modern American that felt superior to other races. And yeah, I uh, I would agree completely. And I, I think he reminded me a lot. And he reminded me a lot of the soldiers or sailors and, and military folks that I've known in my time in the service. Um, there was there was a good number of these, right, who were just so gung-ho that you knew there would be very little questioning of any orders. And and I, I got that from him. And, you know, I got that, that he was the quintessential military robot in many ways their logic goes out the window because the piece of paper says to do the thing even if the thing is to blow up russia and that's i mean you have to you have to just sigh when you think about this because somebody out there would do this and they would follow through with this plan and start world war three in a heartbeat and there's probably plenty of people out there that would do this and that's oh gosh hopefully this never happens that's all i gotta say about that um okay so then let's move on we we get into the war room we get to meet the war room characters and i know you really enjoy these guys so president muffley who is peter sellers right is is the one playing president muffley and if so he's also playing Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove and the British British guy. Yeah. Yeah. So great. He's, he's awesome as an actor. First of all, amazingly different performances, all three of them. Um, What do you think of him? Like, do you think like, what's, what are we supposed to learn from him? Um, That uh, 
having glasses and looking weak probably articulates that you are weak. And no, he, he, he's hard to read because in, I'm I'm starting to see as, as our conversation unfolds that, that Kubrick is doing something interesting. He, he starts us off with believing the best about a person. And then he leads us into a place of like, wow, you're really not the guy that I expected you to be. And and Muffley does this. He he starts out to me feeling like an incredible leader, like someone who knows what to say. I mean, he's talking to uh, General Turgeson, played by George C. Scott, with conviction, with power. I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, the president, you know, he he knows what he's doing. And then over the course of the movie, it just starts deviating. And again, deviating in a hilarious way, but it it makes me think that here's here's a puppet not a president here's someone who is playing a part and someone who is in some ways i feel like he's being told what to say and has an answer for everything only because that's what the script is telling him not the movie script but you know the presidential script and so in a lot of ways i feel like he started out being strong and making good decisions and feeling like he was the leader but over the course of the movie, he really presents himself as someone who is just trying to keep the peace and and not in a strong way, just more in a sense of, oh man, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope I, I'm just going to do enough to make sure I hope everybody's happy. Like he feels like a people pleaser to me, especially with his conversations with Dimitri from, from Russia. Oh yeah. And I think that there's a great line where the uh I guess it's the the Russian ambassador gets invited into the to the war room and of course Turgeson just goes off on him and he's like Aah! and I don't know if it's Muffley or somebody else but somebody says this is the war room don't you know there's no not supposed to be any fighting you know there's no fighting in the war room and I'm like that's kind of verbally awesome that you said that, that the fact that you're not supposed to be fighting in the war room yeah, and, like what are you supposed to be doing in the war room if they're not fighting? Playing Parcheesi or something or travel yeah. or battleship. <laughs> but um anyway, yeah, I thought I thought Muffley was a uh, he felt p- very paper like in terms of his leadership. Yeah, and, and he's supposed to. I mean that's that's right. his character, of course. And I that that quote, by the way, I think is comes up quite often as one of the most famous ones from this movie. The there's no fighting in the war room. So stupid. Oh, that one made me laugh out loud. I'll give it that. That one was an actual chuckle. I, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. And I, the one thing that's interesting. So this is based on a book, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned that yet, but this story is based on a, a novel. And in this, the president, not only, tries to give as much help as possible, but he offers to help the Russians shoot our bombers down. And I just wondered what you thought about that from an ethical standpoint in reality. So take yourself a little bit out of the satirical nature of this movie, because I think within the framework of Dr. Strangelove, it absolutely makes sense to make that choice. But if this was a real life situation, how do we feel about our president authorizing the murder of our own pilots simply because we screwed up and can't get a hold of them and tell them to turn around? Well, if we're talking about 
if we're talking about altruism here, then my knee-jerk reaction is to say yes. I completely support that because we're talking about we're talking about a handful of aircraft with a handful of people on those aircraft, and if their lives can be sacrificed for the sake of ten million, then I say go for it because the greater good is for the livelihood of both America and Russia. Now, from a moral standpoint, in terms of valuing all life, I think it's completely stupid because of the fact that you screwed up as a president or as a general or whatever, and now you're making other people pay for that. But the fact is, those decisions are made all the time, not just in military world, but also in the civilian. And sometimes it's about someone's livelihood. We have people that are convicted every day and go to prison and are on death row for potential crimes that they didn't commit. And we find out later after they've died or if they've died in prison or have been executed that some of these guys were wrongfully accused. So there's definitely a sense of, of, of moral ambiguity with this. But at the same time, I have to think about the bigger, broader picture and the, and the preservation of the entire world. So in that case, I would agree with the president. Totally agree with you there. I think I would do the exact same thing. And I mean, in this case, we're talking an entire major Russian city versus three, four, five guys on that plane. And you'd have to just chalk it up to good old American sacrifice at that point um, for the greater good. And there, that would be their sacrifice. It's also in that world room, we have General 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 Turgidson. Uh, played by George C. Scott, who likes playing generals uh, because he's also General Patton in the amazing film Patton. This guy blows me away. I I want to see more films with him in them. That's for sure, because I love him as an actor. His range in this is so great, where he starts off very serious, and it feels to me like he's going to be the kind of grounding nature within the war room. <laughs> and, and then it quickly is shown that he is not going to be the grounding nature in the war room. And he's just chewing gum. Is it gum that he's chewing? I don't know. Like constantly. The looks on this guy's face, man. I If I could, I, this is better than a GIF. You know those little GIFs you can do, like little emojis of like, weird like slanted eyes faces like huh like or did you really just say that we just need to we just need his face instead because he does that so perfectly the looks that he gives when the president is on the phone with dimitri and telling him information he is just losing his mind you know that and the whole letting the the uh, russian ambassador come in the war room thing that starts the fight you know like he could see the big board. <laughs> you know, and he just, he's so irate and he's so upset. And it all comes from this place of, of misunderstood power and, and control, right? Like he, he feels like they have to keep this stuff safe. And on some level, this is what makes that satire work again. He's right. <laughs> you know, on some level it's like, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to show him everything about how we run things and what we do, but yet, I don't know. We don't. Um, he cracks me up, and I think that the my favorite line by him 
is when he says, gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machine things. <laughs> and it just reminds me, you know, of like how he kind of, he kind of loses control. And he does this another time in the film where he gets really excited. Um, they, they are unable to bring our pilots down <laughs> because the, he's like, no, they can keep going. They can get this low and they can do this. And if they follow a procedure and he's like really excited because he's proud of them. And then he realizes and he pulls back and he's like, Oh, um, that's not what we want though. We don't want, we want them to be done. Like, so he's, he's proud of his men and he's proud of his tech and he wants all this stuff and he has to balance that and fight against his nature, um, in this situation. So he's, he's just a fascinating character to me. Do you, did you, I don't know. Did you, do you like him a lot? Do you think he, do you think he had good judgment ever? I mean, I think he had judgment for his men within the world of the military. And I think that's what he articulates the best is that he gives us the military perspective. Whereas, you know, you know, Muffley presents us in a way of giving us the, the people's opinion, the presidential opinion, the, the, the position of the American people. Uh, Turgeson does a great job of presenting us with a military perspective and being proud of his boys and saying, this is what they were trained to do. So we want them to do that, you know? But Targeson comes across as a man, I think, who is very uh, self-assured, like he knows exactly what he wants when he wants it. And having that military background, he he really does articulate the military perspective on that. I love the fact that he calls the thing behind him the big board. <laughs> it's just like, that's what I would call it. It reminded me a lot of war games and the big board at NORAD. And I was just thinking... I'd like to be in a war room like that. Cause that seems pretty exciting to me to have this big old like lit up board and be like, look what our boys are doing over here. And well, it's funny cause thing. they call like uh sporting event war rooms, draft rooms. They call them war rooms sometimes. And they, they yeah. call it the big board as well. So that may be a callback to strange love. Maybe. I don't know. That's uh so that's interesting, but yeah, yeah. I, I love him, man. I, I think he's probably my favorite character. And again, I just, I love watching him act. I think there is so much going on in George C. Scott's performance that is not language, <laughs> that is body language and his facial expressions, his eyes, the way he just reacts and emotes to the things that are being said around him. Uh, yeah. It just, it just cracks me up. Well, the way he, I was really drawn to the way he says, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mr. President, um, uh, you could almost expect him to just anything he says would be almost as if he's just giving you a, a lecture on something. Uh, Mr. President, I think uh, we have to go to the bathroom because we're out of toilet paper. You know, I, I would expect him to like anything he says, whether it's absurd or real, just with that gruffy voice and the facial expressions that you mentioned, it just makes him a very entertaining character. The funny thing is that I know him from, I don't remember if it's the, was he in the original 12 Angry Men? Because I remember watching the original for the podcast and then watching the remake. I can't remember. I don't think he might have been in the remake. I think he's in the remake. And so seeing him in that and then seeing him in Strange Love just gives me a better appreciation for him because he's very serious in 12 Angry Men. You know, he plays the, uh, one of the, uh, one of the real prejudice guys, the one that ends up, you know, turning last, I think. And, uh, and just owns that role as well. But he's a great actor. He's really, really great. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and then, 
So Peter Sellers also plays Dr. Strange love. And, and this is, this is one of the things I find interesting about this movie is that for me, at least the title character is the least interesting character or my least enjoyable character. So how, what's your read on this guy? Like, what is, what is his point? Because I expect that there is some deep philosophical meaning and satire behind who he is and what he is trying to represent, but I don't enjoy him. And so I think I check out too much during his sections. He bothers me more than anything else. I think oh, he's good. a character that's distracting and I don't, I don't want to not like him because of the fact that he's in the title. And I, I'm trying to figure out when I first read the title, Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to fall in love with the bomb or stop caring and, and love the bomb or something. I, I, uh, I equated that with Dr. Strangelove, like, Oh, it's him saying that. Um, but the, the character himself just comes across as kind of annoying and kind of overdone. Whereas we get, we get satirical characters like Turgeson, um, like Muffley, like uh, Major Kong. We get these guys who we kind of fall in love with in some ways. And then kind of in the third act, we get strange love who just looks weird. Like he just, he's, he's out of place and I get what's happening. I get that he's a personification of, you know, these theoreticians who took thermonuclear war as a realistic policy alternative. But I think because I don't know those types of characters, because those are unfamiliar characters, I don't connect with him. And in particular, there's a moment near the end where he's something's going on with his with his arm i think where he's got this knee jerk reaction not literally but obviously his arm jerk reaction of yeah. wanting to want to do a heil hitler i think that's to me that's peter sellers over overdoing the character and i think where he he's perfect with with muff uh with with muffley and with the uh the british guy strange love is just not the character that i think fits in with the rest of these characters. Yeah. I, I think he's just, I mean, I think I understand his existence because he's there to talk about these weapons and offer, you know, advice from this other perspective, but I, I totally just don't really enjoy him as much either. He's probably the weakest part of the movie to me. And I find that hilarious considering that he's the one it's named after. Um, So the engineers he's based off of though, a little piece of trivia I found the first long-range missiles were the German V-1 and V-2 rockets, and they terrorized England during World War II. At the end of the war, the U.S. and the Soviet Union competed to capture and keep those top German engineers because they wanted that tech. The engineers who had built those rockets became the backbone of the American space program. Uh, the most famous of these engineers was Dr. Werner von Braun, and that is kind of in part – who strange love is based off of this kind of captured German brilliant genius who we take and put to work to creating our own space program instead of weapons to be used against us. And I guess that these, these are the same uh, German engineers that are explored in the right stuff. Um, when they, uh, the objections of these German engineers uh, to install manual control in the space capsules against when the astronauts, they have this, this discussion. So I just found that pretty interesting. And, that, you know, it makes his character, I guess, a little better for me, knowing where he comes from. But 
from a performance standpoint, it just, it just lacks something. Well, I think what he does is he gives more exposition. I think the, the biggest thing that he brings to the table is the whole conversation about being able to live underground for a hundred years and the whole 10 to one female to male ratio. I mean, he's there for comic relief for me. He's there for comedic timing and to push the story along. Could it be done with another character? I don't think so because I think his character is eccentric enough and he would be the only type of character that could give that kind of information. Could the movie have done without it? Sure. I think it absolutely could have because the way it ended was so just completely just abrupt that I didn't really care to have all that information except for making me laugh. Are you talking about like the, so like the thing, the stuff about like going into a bunker and yeah, that stuff wasn't really necessary for me. I didn't really need to know that. And it really didn't add to the story. Like it, if there was any kind of hilarious tension, it didn't get accentuated by that conversation. So in a lot of ways he wasn't necessary for me to see the story be fulfilled the way it was. Yeah, I would agree. And I I think for me, it largely ends when major Kong falls out of the plane. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's like my end. He doesn't fall out. He, he, well, he, 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 he rides out. He does kind of fall though. Like it's not intentional. He's climbed on the, the warhead to try and make sure it works. I mean, he's not like intending to still be on it when it falls, but then he quickly realizes he has no choice and you know, he's, he's a cowboy. So he's going to ride it all the way down. Um, like a good yeah. American soldier. Um, but speaking of that, I actually want to talk about something that is tied into this. And I apologize since you were not able to get to see this movie that I'm going to talk about. You may have minor spoilers for it. And I'm kind of sad because I can't talk about it in detail, but I don't want to spoil it for other people. Maybe I do. No, I don't. I don't know. Anyway, this movie is called Failsafe. And it came out in the same year as Dr. Strangelove in 1964. It's directed by Sidney LeMay, and it is based on the same novel. Now, this is very uh, close to something like Armageddon and Deep Impact coming out around the same time, where you had these two competing stories. The difference is that they're both based on the same property, original property. Now, it's interesting because your dad is the one who recommended this movie to me. When I watched Dr. Strangelove the first time last year, I'd posted on Facebook and he commented and told me, hey, Aaron, did you know this other movie existed? Well, no, never heard of that. At the time, I'd never seen a Sidney Lumet film either. After that, I saw 12 Angry Men, fell in love, became obsessed. I've seen other Sidney Lumet films since then and realized, hey, I really like this director quite a bit. He's amazing. So I thought, why don't I check out this failsafe? It's supposed to be a thriller, more of a, a tense like realistic look at this exact same situation with Henry Fonda as the president. So as you may assume, that's a little bit different than when you have Peter Sellers playing that role comedically. And it is really good. Um, The differences are that instead of a rogue general who's worried about his body being poisoned by fluoride, um, you have a computer malfunction that causes the machine uh, in the, the failsafe machine in the bombers to attack. It gives them the false codes to go. So it's, it's an accident. It's purely an accident and they can't get a hold of them quick enough to recall. It's extremely high tension. I would say it's 
much more mature and damning because it feels like it really could have happened. And there's a general that's in the bomber who refuses to back down. And this is where the movie is kind of makes it or breaks it for you. And if you, if this is where I didn't, didn't a hundred percent love it. Um, but I, I found it fascinating. And that is you had this pilot who, where major T Kong, we get this very heroic sense of American loyalty in failsafe. That same character is basically just absolutely defiant to the fact that this could be a drill. And so it makes you think of those characters that you talked about earlier that actually exist where people are just looking for an excuse, right? Just give me an excuse to push the button. And the president's trying to talk him out of it. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to let you talk me out of it. You told me to go. And the, my orders are not to listen to anybody after you tell me to go. So you can't change that now. You know, it's like almost like a kid arguing with a dad. He's determined to go through with this. And it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like it's, it's high, high stress watching this movie. It's filmed in only one or two locations. So it's got a lot of that claustrophobic uh, feel like 12 angry men does acting's amazing. It's also got Walter Matthau or Matthew Matthew. I don't know how you say his last name in it. Matthau. The ending of it. I, this is what I don't want to give away. I wish you'd seen it. Um, came out, of nowhere, came out of nowhere for me. And I will tell you, I had to take a minute to collect myself. That's all I'm going to say is what went down in the ending of this film. I was not prepared for it, but because of that, it felt like something so um, different than how Dr. Strangelove presents this same exact sequence of events. And I really enjoy the fact that we have both of these different versions in strange love, it's kind of subversive and it feels like it's suggesting that military leadership at times gets off on the prospect of nuclear war. Um, and in fail safe, it makes it clear that the leadership, nobody wants to attack, not the president, not the Russians. Nobody wants to go through with these things. Largely, this movie was a box office failure. More story behind it is, is really interesting. Kubrick learned that it was being made while he was filming Dr. Strangelove. And in order to slow them down, he filed a lawsuit because he didn't want this movie to compete. So he ended up getting this film delayed by eight months so that Strange Love came out first. And it pretty much sealed the fate of Failsafe to where it didn't do anything at the box office, even though it was critically acclaimed. So a little bit of a punk move there by uh, Kubrick. I mean, I guess it's good business. And ultimately, Patrick, I got to tell you this. So having watched the two almost back to back, I think that Failsafe is my preferred film i i really really love it and i think i would watch it before i watched strange love again so if, if anybody out there is listening and has not seen this movie fail safe 1964 check it out especially if you're intrigued at all by the dr strange love story and this idea of more a high tension realistic version because it's highly recommended What's great about this, and I, I said this having not seen Failsafe, but taking your word for it, that having two movies that that use this story creates, I don't want to say interpretations because the same events happen, but the attitudes you mentioned behind it are a 
are very different and you can get such a different type of tone and flavor and, and attitude from both of these. But I think in some ways it sounds like you still get kind of the end result just in a different way. And, and that's that, man, none of this is good. And so I'm excited about watching fail safe and kind of getting that cross comparison between the two. Well, I've got nothing else major to talk about. Um, before we hit our connected, what's that? Major, say, major con. You said oh, got nothing major to talk about. Oh, he was making a pun. Okay. Um, so I, do you want to hit our connecting points next? Absolutely. Let's go ahead and rock into it. All right. Well, do you want to go through yours first or? I, I can. All right. Well, lead us off. All right. So the appreciation of something like Strange Love and movies like this is its essence in both what it says of importance and the nonchalant way of what it's presenting. So like satire is wonderful in that it allows you to digest material and subject matter in a way that gets you to think and laugh. And so in a lot of ways it's very approachable. So one of my favorite scenes is when president Muffley is talking to Dimitri over in Russia I clearly remember watching this and going, this is my connecting point because this is not only hysterical, but it completely articulates satire in a way that I don't know that a lot of scenes or movies do. It could in some ways be the most tense and dramatic moments of the film. You've got these two leaders of the most powerful countries talking to each other, essentially metaphorically standing toe to toe, trying to meet this mutual agreement but instead it feels like a dad talking to his adolescent child who doesn't really understand the situation. I mean, you have, you have this guy muffly going, Dimitri, um, yeah, I need to tell you something. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, yes, we have planes and yes, they're, they are, yes, they're going to attack you. I'm sorry, Dimitri, you hear. And I love the way that Peter Sellers portrays this because we, we insinuate what Dimitri's saying, because obviously he's repeating back in that way. But what I thought was the most hilarious was how much more important it was that the president makes sure Dimitri knew he was as sorry as Dimitri was. Like there's this minute and a half, it felt like a minute and a half dialogue where Muffley's going, I, no, I am sorry. I, I am just as sorry as you are, Dimitri. No, I know you don't think that I am, but you have to believe that I'm just as sorry as you are. And I'm not sure if Kubrick was satirizing the U.S. as like this fake sympathizer to other countries, but that's how it came across to me. And that scene effectively sums up what I think makes this movie uh, as great as it is. Satire comedies give us as an audience this chance to laugh at the absurdity and the reality of the world around us, and they educate us at the same time. So it makes topics like this approachable, and it it's what I think gives the value to a film like this overall. So satire is, I think for me, appreciated most in scenes like this more than anything else, because it's saying a lot uh, in the sense that it's really what, what shows like Saturday Night Live do in terms of their sketch comedies and making fun of the things around them. They're calling attention to the fact that uh, the world is really messed up and two things need to happen. One, we need to be able to laugh at some of these things and two, we need to be able to understand them in a way that make them easier for us to to digest. So that scene in particular really stood out to me for that reason. 
Well, I'm really glad that that's your connecting point because I'm, it makes me even more excited to see how you react to that equivalent scene in Failsafe because there is the same scene and it is extremely different. I will say that okay. uh, in the in the tone and the way that that conversation goes down, it is not like a dad talking to a son. Um, it is it is much different. So um, that should be that should be fun. Well, mine revolves around Major TJ King Kong and that American loyalty that he has, and it it really is just that moment when he first gets those orders and makes the decision that he's going to follow through with those orders. And it's, he gives this ultra patriotic glory pep talk. And so he exclaims first that we're going to have nuclear, nuclear combat with the Ruskies. He puts on that 10 gallon hat because he knows like at this point, who cares about regulations? And then that score comes on in the background that Johnny comes marching home again, just giving you that patriotic feel, right? It's coming over the, the intercom. And I'm going to read his speech because I just, I really love this whole speech. He says, now look, boys, I ain't much of a hand at making speeches, but I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important is going on back there. And I got a fair idea of the kind of personal emotions that some of you fellas may be thinking. Heck, I reckon you wouldn't even be human beings if you didn't have some pretty strong personal feelings about nuclear combat. I want you to remember one thing. The folks back home is accounting on you. And by golly, we ain't about to let them down. Tell you something else. If this thing turns out to be half as important as I figure it just might be, I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Now let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. That speech makes me want to stand up and salute, okay? And that ends the beauty of the movie to me in this little bubble, is we know what he's going to do is wrong. We know that it's terrible and that he is about to send millions of Russian citizens to their death for no reason at all. But we still almost want to root for him because it is so inspiring. It is so encouraging. He is so inclusive. My goodness. It's this parody of a totally loyal American who is being sent on a glory mission. And I I can't help but think it, in any other movie, he's a hero of this whole movie, right? He's the guy that we're connecting with and rooting for. And so his relentless commitment to country and orders, I think, is exactly what our military largely wants. I'm, I know this from experience because I've lived it. That's how things go. No questions asked. No logic used. Absolute devotion follow the book, follow the process, follow the procedure. That's why this bomb gets dropped. All the other things that happen all to the side, it happens because we are so glory hungry that we can't use our brains to stop and think through things logically. And the fact that as a viewer, I can get just as excited with that character 
to the point where I'm almost cheering for him to go complete his mission. I want him to succeed because he's so likable and he's on, he's so like in the moment loyal. That's, that's crazy. And that's, that's what Kubrick is, is doing to us. And that is some masterful work to me. So that's my uh, connecting point. That's good, man. And I think more than anything, two things impressed me about that connecting point. One, James Earl Jones is in that scene. Didn't yes, know that. he is. Yes, so, he yeah. is. It's like a, a young James Earl Jones, or I guess a middle-aged whatever. And two, um, the fact that you were able to uh, impersonate the accent of Mr. Slim Pickens, I think was pretty phenomenal too. So your connecting point was elevated equally as much by your um your interpretation vocally of that speech so good job. Well, i appreciate that i i guess the uh old arkansas roots come out at times and there's nothing you can do about it appropriately enough <laughs> well buddy this has been fun um that, that's that pretty much wraps up our third kubrick month episode we got one to go but until that comes around why don't you tell people where they can find you online if they want to talk to you about this episode or any other that we've done so far. Yeah. Be sure to at me at Facebook and Twitter for sure. Uh, shoeless patch S H O E L E S S P A T C H. I'm always up for a good discussion, although I'm not always on the social webs as much as my counterpart. Uh, if you, if you tag me in something, um, I'll be sure to respond and join in the conversation. Would love to hear more about your thoughts on this and any other movies that we've covered. So next week, we have our January donor pick episode, District 9, as voted by our wonderful patrons. I'm excited to talk about that. We're big big fans of, of that movie and the director, Neil Blomkamp. And we're also going to be doing a bonus episode where we talk about our top five movie aliens. So that's something to look forward to. If you are, are not a patron and want to be a part of that and listen to that discussion, then feel free to support us on patreon.com slash Feeling film. You can get the details on how you can support us uh, monetarily speaking if you'd like. And as you mentioned, Aaron, we've got our final uh, Kubrick month inst- installation, install installment, installment. There we go. I was trying to think of the word, but couldn't uh, full metal jacket. This is the other of the two movies that I have not seen yet. So I'm glad to get a chance to actually watch this for the first time uh, this next week and get to talk about it with you. Well, me too. I had no idea that you hadn't seen it. That's absolutely crazy and just blows my mind. So, wow. There there it is. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Uh, Well, listeners, you can find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. That's on Twitter. And you can find me that way on Facebook as well. And then very active in our amazing Facebook group that we have where all of our listeners like to come and chatter about film all day long. Come talk to us about the Oscar nominations that just got released. You can come talk to us about uh, the Feeler's Choice nominations and make your make your picks for those, or just come talk to us about whatever you want. Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, you name it. All right, Patrick. Well, fun episode, as always. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.